Well, we are in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let me read um, these verses for you. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each Uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Let me uh, begin with our truth statement. Christians are to arm themselves to suffer rather than sin. And since the end is near, they are to serve one another in love. So Christians, we're to arm ourselves to suffer rather than to sin. And since the end is near, we're to serve one another in love. In two weeks, we'll be back indoors worshiping together. And I don't know, it's been so long for you since you've even been in the building, I wonder what you do remember about our, uh, about our building, about our sanctuary. My guess is none of you have forgotten the giant wooden cross that, that sits back on the stage. Uh, as Christians, we love the cross. It, it is our symbol. On it, Jesus died for us. Um, Protestants generally have empty crosses because Jesus didn't stay dead. It is right, it is good that our symbol is an empty cross and we love it. It's beautiful that the Father sent the Son and that Jesus willingly submitted to a death that he didn't deserve and then rose from the dead so that all who would put their faith in him can have life. I love the cross. We, we love the cross. It's beautiful and it's horrific. The suffering that Christ endured for sin was ugly. It was grotesque. He was stripped, beaten, spit on. He was nailed to the cross, and there he bled. For each breath he struggled, he suffered on that cross for our sin. And many of us, maybe all of us, if we could really picture what he went through, we would get sick to our stomachs as we looked at the gore. So the cross is beautiful, and it's horrific that Christ is willing to suffer and die to save sinners, but he wasn't simply willing. He was set on this course to suffer and die so that sinners could be forgiven, those who would put their trust in him. He knew what he came to do, and he was determined to do it. The cross is at the center of everything that we believe as Christians. So Peter writes, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves 
with the same way of thinking. Peter calls us to have the resolve that Christ had. We've talked about submitting in 1 Peter, being a part of our calling, but it's not just submitting. Suffering is also a part of our calling. Peter tells us to be prepared as Christians to suffer. He says to arm yourselves with this way of thinking, that we're to emulate the resolve that Christ had, that we're to embrace suffering as a part of glorifying God. We probably, if we're honest, we don't want that. We want health, we want comfort, we want prosperity. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at weaving the American dream into my Christianity, thinking that if I follow Jesus, I'm going to live a relatively good life. As long as I'm responsible with the money that I have, I should be able to, um, to buy most of the things that I want. I expect that my, my wife and my kids will all live many, many years. For the most part, I expect that people will like me, that I won't have uh, many people that have a problem with me. But none of that is promised by Jesus. I mean, you've read the Gospels. You know what Jesus says to those who would follow him. He says, take up your cross and, and follow me. Right? Take up this instrument of death and torture and follow me. Jesus says, you'll be rejected for believing in me. He told his followers, if the world hated me, what do you think it's going to do with you? They're going to hate you as well. There will be suffering. Jesus says, there will be trial and tribulation. But he says, but take heart for I've overcome the world. Christians, friends will write us off. Family members may disown us. Co-workers will talk about you behind your back. Classmates might exclude you for trusting in Jesus. The way of the Christ follower includes suffering. You can't get Jesus a la carte. Suffering for the sake of Jesus is part of following Jesus. So Peter says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. It starts in our minds. We decide and commit to God's glory, knowing that suffering will be some part of it. Certainly if our Savior suffered, how can we fool ourselves into thinking that we won't be called to suffer for Him? So Peter says, have the resolve that Christ had to glorify God by suffering. And think about what that does. When you arm yourselves with this way of thinking, it prepares you. You won't be as caught off guard, at least, when, when really hard things come, when persecution comes, when trials and tribulation come, because you know it's part of the course. He goes on, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, Peter isn't saying that Christians live perfect lives without sin, but he is saying that the Christ follower chooses to walk after Jesus. And, and by choosing to walk with Jesus, you're choosing not to walk after sin. You've decided that Jesus is your treasure, not sin. That's the sense that we have ceased from sin. In verse 2, it helps us see more of his thinking. And Peter tells us to make these two gospel choices that are linked together. One is live for the will of God. And the second is therefore do not live for human passions. He says, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. And he goes on and on in this list. The Christian chooses to live 
for the will of God and thereby chooses to no longer live for human passions that he lists off. This is what we do when we follow Christ. This is what Liam did when he gave his life to Christ. Not the ways of the world anymore like we used to live for. Right? That list that used to be you and me before Jesus. Or, or maybe your sin wasn't on that list, but your sin was no less an affront to God. So now you live for the will of God. You live for what God wants. And this should change everything in us. This should change how we view work. This should change how we think about and consider finances. This should change how you live in your neighborhood as you're asking God, how, oh, how do I do your will here? What's your will for me with my neighbors, Lord? It should impact how you think about going to school and someday you'll get to go back. It should, think, it, it should change how you think about high school, about college, uh, uh, about the sports team you're on or, or the drama club you're in. Living for God's will should impact our leisure. It should impact how we raise our kids. If you believe in Jesus, your life ought to be locked into this question, how do I live for God's will? What is God's will in this? How do I glorify God? That's our aim. Not the fleshly passions that we all used to live for. He says that that time's past when you lived for those things. You used to think it was worth living for all these sinful things, but now you know that it's God's will that you live for. And Peter's given us a, a couple of these don't lists, right? Don't do this. And if you read your Bible or if you've been to church for a while, you've heard lots of don't lists. And it's easy to zone in on those and think that Christianity or Scripture or God's just about all these don'ts. And Peter has his don't list, but you'll notice that Peter always follows it with do's. Right? Do this. And, and actually, I see that all throughout Scripture. Every time I can think of when we're told, no, don't, here, here's what we do instead. Here's what we're set apart for. Peter calls that good, honorable contact, this, or conduct. This is holy living. And I think it's really interesting, Peter's list of do's, he's saying that these are the things that point people to Jesus. Remember back in 2.12, he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just before that, he, he talked about not living for the flesh, but he didn't say that not living for the flesh is going to pe bring people to Jesus. He, he says it's our good deeds that are going to point them. And certainly, abstaining, not participating in the ways of the world matters, but the good deeds, Peter tells us, point to God. Uh, the founder of Bob Jones University, uh, unsurprisingly, is Bob Jones. And, and he said this, uh, it's a Christian school. Uh, he, said, uh, he said, be so busy being a doer that you don't have time to be a donter. Right? Be so busy being a doer uh, of these good things that God has called us to do, that you don't even have time to be a donter. Christians are our lives filled with good that we are doing. Not, not just abstaining from sin, but are we loving people for Christ? Are, are we just walking dispensers of His love, His grace, His mercy? Do, do we just pour out compassion everywhere we go? Do we lay down our agendas and our desires in order to serve others? Are you quick to help someone at work that's really struggling, even though you've got a long list of things that you need to get to? Do you pick up the phone when someone asks if you have a minute, even though it's a terribly inconvenient time for you? 
Our good deeds matter in people coming to know Jesus. If your goal is simply to not do bad things, the bar is way too low. Not running after sin ought to be a given for us, but we do not stop there. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are created in Christ for good works. Be that neighbor that everyone knows will lend a hand or, or let you borrow their truck. Be that coworker that genuinely cares. Be that person who speaks the truth in love. Yes, we don't live for sin, but we certainly don't stop there. And next in verse 4, Peter tells us that as we make those choices to not live for sin and, uh, and, and to live instead for God's will, he tells us there will be two costs. One, the world will be surprised that you don't join them. And two, they will malign you. The way you live will catch the world off guard. It will be shocking that you don't do what the world does, that you aren't partying in the frat house, that climbing the corporate ladder isn't what you live for. They won't believe that you wait until marriage, that you don't worship money or power or, or fill in the blank any of these things that we can make idols. They will not understand. They will be surprised. They will ask, what happened to you? I thought I knew you. And Peter says, they'll malign you. They'll mock you. At work, maybe you'll be known as the goody two-shoes. They, they can't believe that you don't get drunk. What, what's wrong with you? Or, or, or they find out that you're in, you and your fiancé don't live together and they think that's crazy. How will you know if it's going to work out? They'll be shocked that you don't live for what the flesh lives for. They'll feel judged by you. And, and, and to make themselves feel better, they'll condemn you. You might be labeled intolerant or a religious fanatic or a, a hater or judgmental or a bigot. Verse 5, though, he, he says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They'll malign you. They, they'll take down your name. They might do worse to you. Uh, we, know, we know that all over the globe there are Christians that are suffering persecution, Christians that are losing jobs, losing their businesses. Maybe they're physically threatened or, or actually beaten, thrown into prison. Uh, every day there are Christians that die for their faith. And it might seem in this life like they will get away with it. But Peter says, no, God will judge them. He will judge perfectly. Remember back in 2.23, speaking of Jesus, he wrote, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the judge, uh, to, to him who judges justly. Jesus could have judged his killers justly, but he left it in the Father's hands. There, there will be a day when there is no injustice. Every sin will be either paid for on the cross or judged for all of eternity. Let's break down verse 6 because it's easy to get confused here, I think. He, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached. So the for this refers back to the previous verse in verse 5. The, the gospel is preached because in verse 5, judgment is coming. Right? The gospel must be preached so that people can respond and be saved from the judgment that is coming. He then says, even to those who are dead, and I think the NIV is really helpful here. The NIV wrote, those who are now dead. So this refers to people who were alive. The gospel was preached to them. Since that time, they have died in this life. And he goes on, he says, that though judged in the flesh the way people are. So what does he mean here? Well, what's the way that people are judged? This came with the fall, right? Death 
entered in because sin entered in. Every person dies a physical death. So it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist. There will be a day when all of us breathe our last breath. And then he says, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So even though a Christian still experiences physical death in this life, they are alive in spirit like God. Let's take on verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He begins by saying the end of all things. What does that mean? Especially since this was written nearly 2,000 years ago. The Bible uses language like this. It describes that we are living in the, the last days or the end of all things. The period of the last days might be longer than you would expect it to. Uh, but biblically, that's, it started when Jesus came in the flesh and it ends at his second coming. So 1 Peter 1.20, Peter wrote, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching, it's the day of Pentecost, he quotes Joel, uh, the prophet, says, in the last day, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Hebrews 1.1, the author writes, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So this concept of the end of all things, the last days, this isn't just a Peter idea. Scripture seems to want us, right, those living this side of, of Jesus coming, to live in light that the end is coming. And that should impact how we live, that we, we should live with the end in mind. So do we live, Christians, as if the end is coming, as if we are in the last days. So let's compare and contrast the last days before vacation, okay? Um, at work, the last days before vacation, uh, I don't know about you, but I am ready to go, right? I, my mind is already thinking about the trip that I'm going on with my family, and I can't help but daydream about it. So it's tough for me to keep my mind on work, my guess is at least some of you are this way as well, right? You're not as productive on those last days before a vacation. Maybe you try to look busy, right? Every time the boss walks by, you're on your computer or on your phone. Maybe you schedule a few cupcake meetings or, or do a project that you could do in your sleep that really isn't even that helpful. Now, some of you are incredibly productive in your last days at work, but that ruins my illustration. The rest of us, we struggle. We, we struggle to, to really be on task at work during the last days. Now, the last days before vacation during non-work hours, ironically, are incredibly productive. Maybe your most productive time of the year. You have stuff that you have to get done. You are focused and you're determined. You need to pack. 
You need to make sure the car is gassed up. Uh, if you're flying, you got to make sure that everyone's checked in for the flight, that your, your, uh, your checked bag doesn't weigh too much. You're thinking about, man, did I set the sprinklers? I need to mow the lawn one more time. I've got to get the mail key to our neighbor. I got to get the garage code to the dog walker. walker. Um, is my rental car lined up? I mean, the list goes on and on. Some of you are, are thinking uh, about your itinerary that you have set. You're making sure you got multiple copies of that. Others of you are trying to figure out how to talk to your spouse out of going on vacation with an itinerary. It's amazing. On our last days before vacation, when we're not at work, how productive we can be. So which way, as a believer, do you live? Not in the last days before vacation, but, but the last days before Jesus comes back. Are you skating by? Is your mind on anything but the task at hand? Or are you focused because time is ticking? Is your mind on God's glory? Are you concerned for people that have not trusted in Jesus yet? Are there conversations that, that you just really want to have with others about Christ? Uh, are you concerned uh, about encouraging other brothers and sisters to continue following in Jesus? Uh, are you using your time wisely? Are you living for something that's, that's really just a waste of time? Decades ago, there's a pastor talking to college students, and he, he really challenged uh, the American dream of retirement. And he had um, them imagine a couple that worked hard their whole lives, um, really diligent to save, to invest. They got to retire at a, at a pretty young age, young enough that they could travel really wherever they wanted. And, and what they loved was the water, so they bought a boat. And they took their boat to all kinds of beautiful beaches. And it was out on these beaches that they discovered gorgeous seashells. And they couldn't help it. They started collecting everywhere they went. And they'd take the most beautiful seashells. And they amassed, I mean, this unbelievable collection of seashells. And then he had the college students imagine this couple after they died standing before the Lord to give an account of their life. And, and what they did was, was they turned and they showed Jesus their collection of seashells. Man, I, I don't want to stand before the Lord and, and just have a collection of seashells to show Him. When, when I stand before the Lord, when I'm face to face with Christ, I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We've got to live with the end in mind. Uh, we're, the world is so good at distracting us from, from what we know this life and the next is all about. So he, he goes on, he says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Right? Be, be self-controlled. Instead of being controlled by self, be self-controlled. Peter gave a list of, of what it looks like to be controlled by self, to be controlled by fleshly passions. Which are you? Are you self-controlled or are you controlled by your flesh? He says to be sober-minded, having a clear mind, able to think. The way of the world so often is, is just waiting to get off work so they can unwind, so they can throw a few back and escape thinking. But this isn't the way of God's people. We're to be sober-minded in our thinking. He tells us that we're to love one another earnestly. Right? It's not a fake love. It's a real love, a sincere love in Christ that we are to have for one another and he says one another to remind us that this is how the church interacts together. 
Right? Peter's used family language multiple times in this letter. God's people are, are to be the, the family of God. We're a relational people. So if you attend a church and you don't have relationships with the people at that church, you're not a part of the church. You just show up, you consume the music or the sermon, but you aren't really a part of the body if you don't have relationship. The church is to love one another. It's one of the ways that Jesus told his disciples that they will will be known as his disciples when they love each other well. Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, and and he can't mean that that our love takes care of sin the way that Christ's love covers sin. What he does mean is that when we love one another well, it it takes away the power uh, that that sin has in in our community. Just like a flame needs oxygen, but if you take away that oxygen, that flame will be extinguished, so love takes the fuel out of sin. So love in a church... It's looking to snuff out sin. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a judgmental way, in a legalistic way, in a holier-than-thou way, uh, but in a way that I want the very best for you, brother and sister in Christ. So, so a brother and sister in Christ can lovingly point out a sinful attitude or action in me so that it doesn't grow, it doesn't fester. And personally, I receive that a whole lot better from another Christian that I know loves me. Right, that encourages me, that prays with me, that, that's there for me, that, that will call me or text me. That person, I'm very open to them confronting my sin. I'm not so open when someone's just constantly pointing out everything in me that, that they see as potentially sinful. I right, were to love one another. If you're engaged in the life of a local church, at some point, you will get hurt by others. I know I've said this before, but you will get hurt by someone in the church. You will hurt someone in the church, probably many someones. Sometimes we'll do it accidentally, and sometimes we'll do it with some intention. We want to get someone back. When we love each other with earnest love, it's a whole lot easier to forgive knowing that that this person in Christ loves me. It's way easier to reconcile. Peter goes on, he says, show hospitality without grumbling, that that this is a mark of God's people, that God's people are to be hospitable. In the first century, uh, a traveler would have a really hard time finding any hotels at all. So they, they would travel to the town square, hoping that someone from the town that night would invite them to be their guests and to stay there in their home. Hospitality was a necessity, and the church has seen it as an opportunity to to love people. It's a gospel opportunity. But today, we can live next to someone for years and never share a meal in one of our homes together. We can live next to each other for years, never even barbecue outside together. You can go to a church and come every Sunday. You can be a part of a Bible study. You can even serve in ministry together, go out to coffee together, but still never be in one another's homes. And there's something, there's something so good, so sweet about the fellowship when you're in someone else's home and they're sharing a meal together. I love our fellowship here on a Sunday before, before our service, after service, but, but there's something that is just the next level. When, when someone from your church invites you over to have a meal with them and you share a couple hours together. Now, you will notice he said to be hospitable without grumbling. Hospitality, sorry. Um, it can be hard. 
it, it can be intimidating. Um, it can be stressful, right? Maybe, maybe you're thinking, man, I need, to, I need to clean everything up. And technically that's not true. We all do it, but you don't have to, right? You, you could just have them over. Or, or, or maybe you're like me and, and, and you panic about, I used to panic about, man, what are we going to cook? Cooking's great. Honestly, though, you could order pizza, take out, serve it on paper plates, whatever you're drinking, have it in plastic cups, and that would be fine. That would be good still. Or, or maybe you stress because you're like, I, I live in this apartment or, or our house is so tiny. I think an uh, uh, excuse we used to have was my schedule is so busy. But COVID has kind of helped take care of a lot of our activities. And, and now COVID certainly brings challenges, right? Maybe you're not comfortable going in somebody else's home. If that's the case, man, we got a few more weeks of good weather left. You go to a park. You go to your patio. I've seen people just in their driveways and camping chairs like y'all have right now. Uh, if it starts raining, you could open up the garage door, hang out in the garage. Uh, this Christian man, John Dennis, he wrote this about hospitality, and I really like it. He said, the key to hospitality is to begin. It doesn't matter if you live in an apartment, dorm, or house. Once a week, opening your home, baking a few cookies, or, or checking up on an old neighbor, or borrowing a cup of sugar from the house next door. Our, our world lives in isolation, but it may be that through our doors, all kinds will come. One who is hungry, an intellectual who is questioning, a colleague in crisis, a student from a far off land. It may be that God's new people from the nations will sit at your table. It may be that having a shared meal and having tasted Christ, their own table will be open for the gospel in a country that we would never reach. Hospitality is not something you do overly pragmatically. We do not practice hospitality to get conversions. We practice hospitality because it is right. We practice hospitality because we are God's people. We share God's goodness through our homes because God has shown his goodness to us. His grace overflows the threshold of our homes. Being hospitable is not an option if you're a believer. Invite someone to share a meal. Verses 10 and 11, Peter tells us that we're to serve one another with our God-given gifts. If you are a Christian, right, if you've placed your faith in Christ, God, by His grace, has gifted you with a spiritual gift. Peter doesn't list all the gifts here. There are places that make long lists of spiritual gifts. He just gives us a couple, and he tells us that in everything, in, in everything we do with these gifts, it, it'd be to God's glory. A church family is not healthy if only some people in the church are using their gifts in the body. To function as God designed, the entire body contributes to the life of the church. But too often, we treat church, we treat church service like a movie theater. I'm going to pick my seat, sit with my people. I'm going to consume what I pay for. Man, I hope they pick music that I like today. And that preacher better be funny or insightful, or give me a historical background, or teach me how to say some Greek words, and then we leave. And this model of church has lots of problems, but one is that only a handful of people are, are required to use their gifts there. The, the welcome team, the musicians, the sound tech, the preacher, maybe a couple others, but Peter tells us everyone is to serve the body with the gifts, not just on Sunday, right? but everyone's to serve the body 
with the gifts that God has given them. And, and for some, that'll be up front. Everyone will see your gifts, but there will be many gifts that very few people, maybe no one will know who used that gift to make this thing happen for our body, but it will bless the body. It's remarkable to me where, where we go from in verse 3, this, this list of fleshly passions, and, and then to verses 7 through 11. Since we live in the last days, let us live with self-control and sober-mindedness. Let us show hospitality and be known for earnest, sincere love. Let's live by the power of the Holy Spirit in how you serve in your church family. This is how we live, church. That's our goal, that He would be glorified. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, we we thank you that you did suffer and die for us, Lord, and and we acknowledge that suffering is part of our calling. And and God, we know that we can only endure um, by your grace. We pray, I pray that you would arm us with the mindset that you had, Jesus, that that we would know what this life is about, that we would be determined to, to glorify you, that we would live for God's will, forsaking the the fleshly passions, Lord. God, I pray that we would be a people, that that all your churches all over this planet would be a people that that display that that the end is coming, Lord, that we'd be ready for that, that we would display your love for this world, that we would display and remind each other in Christ of the love that you have, that, that enduring will be worth it, Lord. God, I thank you so much for how you've blessed us, Lord. I I can't believe um, that we've been able to meet outside, uh, minus that day of smoke, every other Sunday for months now. Lord, I I pray for my brothers and sisters at home. I miss them, Lord. I I pray that you would bless them, that they would be encouraged. I pray that they would have believers in their lives that they're in contact with, that there be fellowship, even if it looks really different right now. Or we want to be a people that are running hard after you, that, that, that live knowing what's coming, Lord, and just longing for you to be made known in this world, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.